Hello everyone, welcome to Ale of a Time. It's Luke here. We've got a great episode this week with Foghorn Brewery. Sean Sherlock, he's someone that we've known for a while but never really had our paths crossed to do a podcast so it's really, really cool. Uh, Genuinely really love chatting to Sean and we kind of probably could have talked for another couple of hours uh, all about beer philosophy and brewing and all those things so i hope everyone in melbourne when they're hearing this is feeling in good spirits uh good vibes and if you're not that's still okay to not be in good spirits and good vibes because we've got five more days as i record this of lockdown uh but i reckon we'll be we'll be fine at the end of it and i look forward to seeing you all back at the pub how's that for a bit of uplifting uh motivational stuff there unscripted motivation uh, also patrons check out the three ravens instagram or facebook for a little insight into the beer we've got coming in the meantime uh we'll throw to or i'll throw to a chat with sean Sean, how are you going? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Luke. And Dave, uh, down in sunny Melbourne. Hopefully all has been well on Super Bowl Monday for you guys down there. Dave won some money on it, I believe. Won some money uh, on a uh, big mistake on my part, but paid off. Paid off a beauty. Um, How do you win money by mistake, Dave? I was supposed to back both sides of the first touchdown scorer um, to get myself a little bit of money, but I was too late for the second side, but the first side got up, so um, good times. So you won a lot of money. Did well, yeah. Sean, it looks like you had an event happening at Foghorn. We had a Super Bowl's been something that we've um, had an event at our venue ever since we've opened, Um, and it's... It's quite big, actually. So it's, it's traditionally our biggest ever Monday. It's easy this year because thanks to COVID, we're closed on Mondays now. Um, but we we opened especially today, um, and uh, yeah, really good day in there. Right up until um, a Kansas uh, fan um, got grumpy and decided to put his his fist through the drip rock in our gents. Um, that was that, that was that's not a regular occurrence at Foghorn. We're not that kind of venue. I hesitate to add, but um, yeah, he. Uh, we we got him out the door pretty quickly, but uh, I've got to got to uh, got to call the uh, the chippy tomorrow, which is good. What brought that event on? Are you a, are you a fan or is someone at the venue a fan? I, my original business partner's from the states, um, and he's no longer with the business, but um, he's definitely a fan, and was it was one a really big day of the year for him. I'm um, I'm a, f- a football um, NRL fan, um, and to some extent um, the A League, but. Um, not NFL. It's not really something that I personally follow, but it it's worked really well in our venue, and um, we we were surprised how many people locally. You know, when we opened back in uh, twenty fifteen, the first time we did it, we took a little bit of a um, took a little bit of a punt, and um, yeah, it was just a raging success. And we've done it we've done it ever since, and it's gotten slightly bigger every year. And yeah, they, we can only open uh, we can only start selling beer from ten. But, uh, and the game kicks off at 10.30. Um, so we, we open the doors for 9.30, and there's always a bit of a queue uh, out to get in. Um, socially distanced, well-behaved queue this year um, with COVID and all the rest of it, but still a queue. And, uh, yeah, we opened the doors. They all, they all poured in. Massive, um, massive crush at the bar, um, socially distanced this year. So maybe not a crush, but we had a yeah, a decent, a decent hit at the bar at ten o'clock when it opened, and uh, and then away we away we go. So yeah, we've never had a single drama, and then this year um, we just heard this great crash uh, coming from the gents, and sure enough, cranky man um, who. Uh, yeah, we feel may have may have preloaded, but anyway, um, decided decided that he didn't like the uh, the wall in our bathroom. So anyway, yeah. fun times. We um, it's interesting. I used to go every year to the catfish here in Melbourne. A few of us would go, and the first year I went, there was I think us and maybe one other group and one or two hangers on. Yeah. And then I went, maybe not last year, the year before, and I got there a little bit late. I was like, it'll be fine. 
you know, I remember what it, you know, it's always like and couldn't like fortunately someone had saved me a seat, but if I if they hadn't have I wouldn't have got a spot. It's uh it's interesting how it's becoming almost a a, a celebratory day here. And I, I don't care about the, the game at all. Uh, I like eating wings and drinking beer all day. I think it was probably about 50-50 the split um, in the venue. But we, you know, I don't know that Newcastle's a massive hotbed of, of NFL um, in Australia, but we've, there's certainly a, you know, a solid community of expats. Um, and that's because we had the initial connection with that community through my my ex-business partner. I think we, we connected with that community um, initially. So it was sort of seen as... We're one of there's two or three other venues that are kind of seen as venues that do it properly and have you know um, places to go if you actually really want to watch the game, be surrounded by people who are genuinely interested. I mean, every every second pub in town now is doing something because it's a you know it's a way to make a dollar on a Monday. Um, but for us, it's it's a little bit more than that. And I'm sort of underselling my interest. I'm interested in it, um, but I'm not going to pretend to be the world's biggest NFL fan um, because I'll get called out pretty quickly by the experts. <laughs> that's for sure. But um, yeah, we uh, we go all right with it. And um, I reckon it reached its peak about two years ago. We we still probably um, from numbers and you know number you know, amount of wings sold and amount of beer consumed uh, this year was just as big as, as any year but about two years ago you know we had media interest we had the local tv turned up we had um you know that kind of we had local radio one of the local radio stations rang and interviewed us on the morning and all this sort of stuff it was a real it was a real thing um that that sort of uh, excitement has calmed down a little bit but um yeah the interest is still there and there's Place is just packed with with all of the uh, the jerseys and and everything. It was good. It's a good. It was a good vibe, apart from the, the one clown. But one clown in six years isn't too bad, I suppose. You can reinforce those walls with your wing money, I reckon. That's it. That's it. Um, now, before we go too far, Dave, have you got a beer? Or are you drinking? I am drinking uh, Last Call from Range, which is a uh, well, they call it just an IPA, but it's quite bitter. It's not as hazy as all of them, but it's still like the hazy variety. But um, it's good. It's got a bit more of a bit of backbone than some of the other ones. Um, I'm enjoying it a lot. Awesome. Have you? Did you get you it at it? The, ven- the venue, or did you? No, no. I just got it from uh, Carwin uh, over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, how about you? Uh, I've got the new Cryo Mofo from Bolter. Uh, I'm sure most people know them. Uh, all Cryo hopped West Coast IPA. So Cryo's the. Um, I don't, can't remember how. Someone asked me this the other day. Actually, how do they make Cryo? And I was like, you know cryogenic hop stuff uh, <laughs> like yeah sean there's been know? a new variation there's a new variation on 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 treatments of hops that have come out you know over the few years um you know whether it was the uh, the resin um what was the stuff that i've forgotten the name hop, of now hop we used hop hash we used it in a couple of different beers and i've uh, i've forgotten it already um there are a few a few different ones there, but um, yeah, the cryo seems to be the one that is the most successful. We've got some, but I haven't used it yet. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's certainly seems yeah, certainly in the states they're really going hard with it. And I think it's it's all uh, part of um, as the industry is growing with the really aggressively hopped and particularly late hopped beers, um, trying to find ways of of getting that without the enormous amount of wastage of product um, that, that comes through, you know, physical hop loads uh, in beer. These, so, you know, the, the dry hopping loads that, that breweries are using these days too. Um, it's There's so much potential for, for losses across the process that um, anything that can minimise that's a good thing. The um, I remember sitting in one of the happy sessions at the Garage Project conference in New Zealand and they, someone was talking, I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about using cryo. It might have been the guy from Alvarez Brewing. And they use a lot of cryo because it, it avoids, also avoids hop creep. Uh, yeah. It helps kind of get around that because they're not adding as much sugars and, and kind of proteins uh, was my understanding. But they found using all cryo, you lose a little bit of the texture in the body and the, the fullness of the beer uh, with just going all cryo. And I, to be honest, this is tasty, don't get me wrong. I don't think... Scotty can make a bad beer at uh, Bolter, but um, it certainly doesn't have that kind of middle palate that I, I'd be wanting um, or expecting in an IPA. But the f- I had it the other night for the first time, and uh, I think Emma, my, my girlfriend, she got to the end of hers and went, "Man, 
I drank that so quickly. What was the percentage? And I was like, uh, seven. And she's like, oh, <laughs> I'll just have one. So that's always a good sign if you, you get through a 7% IPA. Yes, so, that is a very good sign. Um, so, Sean, we've heard a little bit about uh, Foghorn, but tell us some more. Uh, what's the kind of, uh, how does it fit into the, the world of Newcastle and, and how did it all come about? Yeah, well, we um, there's a couple more either having just opened or about to open locally, but we were the first um, um, sort of modern or of this wave of, of craft breweries, first sort of proper brew pub in town. Back in the 80s, um, there was um, a place called the Queen's Wharf Brewery. It was a, it was a bicentennial project that had built a, a bar um, on Newcastle Harbour and a really ahead of its time, way too small um, brewery that was brewing. It was kind of... These days, it would be similar to a sort of a brew-on-premises or a really, really nano kind of setup in terms of the actual brew kit itself. But it was put into what was then the highest profile venue in town. It just got absolutely swamped with with people, and there's you know no way they could keep up with the beer for it. And it, you know, it sort of it was a brewery, um, but a lot of its beer ended up getting brewed offsite. It wasn't um, a, a proper, genuine brew pub for an extended period. So we by the mid um 2010s so we're talking 2014 uh we took on a derelict building right in the cbd in newcastle um and um yeah refitted it spent um way too much money and put a really good brewery in and um and took a a space that was full of pigeons in various stages of life and death and birth and what have you um and, and that had been empty for for some time and refitted it, repurposed it, and um, and came up with a really nice, um, really good, more sort of modern brew pub experience. And it was really focused, and the, and the concept behind it was very much a brew pub. So it was, um, you know, I've, I came out of the background with Murray's, which at that time, by 2014, was a well-established, um, and by the standards of that time, a reasonably big craft brewery. Um, it was nationally ranged, and we were selling in all of the dens and BWSs and what have you around the country, um, to step out of that and go into a, into a brew pub at a time when, you know, there weren't that many um, just straight-up brew pubs around the place. It was a big shift, but it was something I was really passionate about and something um, particularly, uh, you know, it was where finance met beer in a way. Um, the beer has always been the absolute focus for me, although I know – Every brewer that you've ever had on this show has probably said something similar, but um, it's been a really, real obsession for me to just consistently produce the best quality stuff that I can do, and with with no no shortcuts taken on that. And that was the approach we took at Murray's, and we tried to take that nationally. I, I wanted to take that same approach um, locally, but um, you know, wasn't able to fund it to go national, um, and thought, well. If you can't do it well at that scale, let's bring it back hyper-local. Um, and that became a real mantra, or it, it certainly was a mantra of the industry in the States by that time, but I think it sort of followed out here a little bit more after that. But, you know, we were able to, to produce the quality of product we wanted, um, have the, the low beer miles, you know, getting it into people's hands totally under um, our control um, in, in terms of freshness and quality and those kinds of things. Um, and have the cash flow that's important um, for a business at that startup stage. Um, if you, you know, trying to to run packaging lines and send it all around the country from day one, um, if you haven't got very deep pockets, that's a very very difficult um, thing to do and to keep the business alive through that that critical first two year period. And the brew pub model sort of answered all of the ticked all those boxes for me, I guess. Um, and was lucky enough um, to, to pair um, with somebody who had a, a similar vision and we were able to put you know, some pretty solid funding for the era into something and, and really build build something great. And, yeah, it's gone from, from strength to strength. The, the venue's, um, venue's going well. Um, it's coming out of the COVID nightmare that everyone's been through. Um, obviously, as a society, we're not through it yet, let alone the hospitality sector, but we're, you know, we're in a lot better place than we were um, well, you know, March 22nd, I remember it very well <laughs> from last year. It was, uh, it was just such a horrible, horrible time uh, for everyone that, you know, 
yeah, we're, uh, I, I think I think we'll all sort of you know, might, might even close the doors for a day on March twenty second, just in the hope that nothing bad happens again. I don't know. It was just such a, it was it was such a scaring experience for, for certainly for me, and I think for a lot of us in the hospital world. And, and the what's the uh, Newcastle CBD really like at the moment? It's in a really dramatic period of change and and growth. Um, Newcastle, I don't know if you guys have ever been, um, or if you have, it, it's sort of. It's the second city in New South Wales, um, and by white Australian standards, it's very old. Um, it's uh, it was settled second um, in terms of white settlement uh, by after Sydney. Um, it was a place initially of secondary punishment. <laughs> so if you, if you played up in Sydney, you got sent to Newcastle, and they very quickly discovered coal, and the town grew um, from there. And as a result, it's it's a bit like you know, there's, there's uh, the the small windy you know streets. It's not it's not laid out and planned in a way like parts of Melbourne or Adelaide or uh, other cities are. It's it's much more you know the old part of Newcastle is much more like the old part of Sydney, um, just not quite as densely populated and as big. Um, but being a working class place, it, it and it sort of sat there and, and didn't do much through the seventies, eighties, and nineties. We had you know, the steel industry shut down and, and you know, the, the 80s recession really impacted here. Uh, and we had an earthquake in 89 and a lot of buildings literally fell down. Um, and about 15 people died by Australia, again, by Australian standards for an earthquake. That was a, a quite a big deal. And there was just no money to, to repair it. Um, so a lot of, just a lot of vacant buildings and vacant lots and, and the place really stagnated. Um, and in the last sort of, you could say 10 years, but particularly the last five years, there's just been a huge surge of investment and growth. There's a, there's a, you know, I won't bore the craft beer world with a lesson of why Newcastle's suddenly growing again, but it's, it's uh, you know, in a tiny way, Foghorn was part of that change, um, but there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot else going on around us. And so, yeah, the, the, the CBD at the moment is a really interesting and vibrant place to be. It's, it's a sort of a controversial place to be because with it, you can imagine in a place that has not changed a lot for, you know, for, well, I'm, I'm almost 50 years old, 48 years old. So in my lifetime, it, you know, for the first 45 years of my life, it didn't change much. Um, suddenly it's just going nuts. Um, so that, then that brings a lot of, you know, it's some controversial decisions and some... Um, some growing pains and so on with it, but um, it's really interesting place to be at the moment, and a lot of a lot of good stuff happening. So, what's the the beer situation? Because there's a, at least one other brew pub opening or opening yep. There's there's some um, that are opening. There's a, there's a couple of nano breweries. Um, there's um, a little nano brewery called Sticks, which is in the suburb of Carrington, just out of town. There's um, a new um, newish brand called Rogue Scholar, but they've just opened a, a venue um, not far from us, just a block or two down the road in the CBD. Um, Modus Operandi, of course, are, uh, one of the bigger and more established brands. They're moving uh, moving up the coast from Sydney, um, and they're investing really heavily in beachside suburb of Merriweather, and they're, I believe, not far away um, from, from opening. I, I'm hearing sort of mid-year, uh, but You'd need to ask those guys for more detail, but that you know that's an exciting project. Um, and then the, the Hunter Valley, which is renowned for its wine, um, Newcastle's the sort of capital of the Hunter. If you want to look at it that way, the Hunter region. So about an hour away, roughly forty-five minutes drive um, from from Newey is is the Hunter wine region, and it's uh, it's got about I think six of six or seven at least um, craft breweries in that location, and. We've just um, invested there ourselves in the, in that in that region as well as part of the the growth of the Foghorn brand. Um, so yeah, it's Newcastle itself. Again, going back to my um, earlier days with Murray's um, in in an earlier era of craft beer, it had really strong uh, penetration of craft um, into into more mainstream venues and into just into the beer scene. It was a, it's a it was a stronger beer scene um or craft beer scene than sydney was for a long time uh, sydney's again in the last five years it's the the whole inner west scene in sydney's exploded and now there's there's craft breweries everywhere in marrickville newtown that that inner west scene and it's fantastic but for a, a long period there um sydney was 
a really tough craft market, um, very pub dominated and very mainstream dominated. And Newcastle had a really similar pub scene, but for reasons that I'm still, you know, it's hard to explain really, but but craft was always a little bit stronger. Um, and we, you know, we, we were, we would per capita um, sell more beer in Newcastle uh, with Murray's, even, yeah, you know, even than we did in Sydney. Um, you know, it was a much smaller scene, but probably in terms of the penetration of, of craft into the mainstream was, uh, it's, you know, was as strong as, as Melbourne. Um, wasn't as strong as Perth Fremantle. That was that was always the absolute strength um, going back. Um, Melbourne, you know, may have overtaken that these days, and Brisbane's really going through a huge renaissance. But um, but Newey punched above its weight for a long period of time there, and so yeah, great place to open a brewery because you've got a really good market. Kind of a running theme so far this year of uh, <clears throat> just conversations I'm having is there are so many things happening that we are not up with or or even you know don't even have a chance of staying up with and that's really really exciting and you know even you saying you know there's six or seven breweries out in the hunter valley you know there, there would be a time when you'd probably know exactly the every brewery within i don't know yeah. a thousand kilometers of you <laughs> uh maybe even more and and now it's you know there are so many popping up and, and it's it's kind of, it's really cool and it's really exciting to, to kind of hear all those things happening. Yeah, and I mean, for a long period of time, um, we were, um, you know, the only um, brew pub in, in Newcastle and that was great, but there was there was always other people doing things around us and there was always other things that were soon to open or going to open. And, and if, while well, we were, you know, might have been the only brew pub there for a period, um, Lots of great craft bars. I mean, obviously, uh, the Grain Store is is known, I think, nationally uh, for good reason. It's it's one of the one of the premier craft bars in the country and has been for a long period of time. Um, you can't sustain venues like that. And while the Grain Store is the best known, there's a string of them locally, um, a string of you know similarly good craft venues um, in the local area, without a pretty strong scene. Um, and it's a it's a scene that exists and has existed without that sort of really um, intense um, hospitality scene that you've got, say, in Melbourne. Um, people view hospitality and careers in hospitality in Melbourne, from what I see, um, as a real, as a career or it's almost like a vocation. People are in it for an extended period of time. Um, Newey and, to some extent, Sydney and, and most places I've been around, there's, there's, a, there's a core of... of hardcore hospitality people but but a lot of the trade is is people that are going to uni and they do it while they're you know they're doing something else they're not necessarily um you know it's, it's no surprise people like Siobhan Karen and, and those people come out of Melbourne uh, I guess is what I'm trying to say um so for a place like Newey to sustain the venues and, and sustain the craft beer and craft bar culture it has is a testament to the demand for the product as much as it is anything else and that's you know I'm running a a fairly big, um, you know, 250 seats, a decent sized craft venue in, 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 in town. Um, I'm not being negative about um, the quality of staff or anything. We've got some really great staff and there's some really good hospitality people. But, you know, there is a, you know, Melbourne is, Melbourne does seem to be the place where hospitality and that, that mentality, it's a real, it's a real focus. Um, whereas, so for us to sustain the bars we have and, and through a long period of time, you know, these, these bars didn't all just open. Four months ago, eighteen months ago. So, I mean, the grain store's been around for I don't know at least ten years. I would have thought something like that. Um, you know, and before that, the Albion Hotel um, that you know came out of it. And going back to where we started in a very circular way, the, this Queens Wharf Brewery that I was talking about. That was we're going back to that. You know, we're talking late eighties here. This is 80, 87, 88. Um, that's you know, in in craft terms, that's fairly early for Australia. I don't think there was. Maybe there's probably two or three similar things in all of Australia at the time, I, 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 from my understanding. Yeah, and you got the um, the guys at Picton Shara's um, and the Australian Hotel, but in Sydney, um, yeah, there's a few. The, the Queenswolf Brewery doesn't hold its place um, in that pantheon of craft excellence because the quality of the beer wasn't quite there, um, and the size of the brewery and all of those things, and it it, it 
it for a variety of reasons didn't fully kick on, but it, it got taken on oh, the, the brewing side of it ultimately by, you guys may remember or at least have heard of the Blue Tongue brand, um, which ended up with SAB Miller and then in the CUB portfolio before they shut it all down. Um, but it was, it was an attempt um, in that sort of 1990s, um, early 2000s, I think it was from memory, it was very late, well, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but they, they had a crack really at taking on that kind of Han premium, uh, premium lager into the market um, in, in small brewing. So it was, it was craft and it was independently owned before it got bought out, but it was of that different era. It wasn't, it wasn't brewing IPAs and Imperial Stouts. Um, it was kicking off with, with, you know, with lagers and, and so on, but they brewed some good beer in their time. And they, what, else, what else it did for the market up here was it bred um, brewers because they, they were, you know, they weren't a huge brewery, but they were bigger than, you know, they weren't, they weren't a nano they, and, they, and they were more of a production oriented brewery. Um, so when they shut down, um, there were lots of line brewers, production brewers and so on that, that then filtered into the Newcastle and Sydney beer scenes. And you, you scratch the surface of those scenes and there's lots of people that used to work in that Blue Tongue, um, SAB Miller, um, Coca-Cola uh, brewing period. Um, yeah. And they went to Brewery back in the day. So. so I guess that probably brings us to how you started brewing. What's your, uh, what's your background story? Almost a stereotype of the industry. Um, I'm the classic home brewer that made a career out of it. So, I, but unlike, um, I guess, the more recent variations on that theme, um, my home brewing days started obviously uh, well before the internet and so on. Um, I'm, I started brewing back in the very late 1980s. I think my first beers were 88, 89 with my dad. Um, under the house, uh, brewing Cooper's kits, trying to get the closest thing we could to Guinness and then to Cooper's best extra stouts. Um, and we brewed some truly horrendous beers, uh, as everyone does. Um, and, you know, I travelled, I lived lived in Ireland for a while and, and travelled um, to Europe, had the, had the classic um, beer epiphany in, in Belgium. I mean, this is 95 for me, uh, the, other than... Um, uh, Stella and I think Leffer Blonde by that stage might have made it, um, but uh, I knew next to nothing about Belgian beer, uh, and, and I was one of the keenest home brewers you'd find in in Newcastle, which was a fairly keen homebrew t- town at that stage. Um, that was just the the access to information and so on just wasn't there the way that it is now, and and the and the bottle shops weren't full of those beers and so on, but. You know, hit Belgium and just went crazy. Um, and then um, same trip went across the Czech Republic. And my my lifelong love of Czech pilsner uh, was formed. Um, you know, buying 400 mil bottles of fresh, you know, pilsner Urquell and Budweiser, Budweiser and so on um, for 20 cents, you know, 24 cents, I think it was um, the equivalent back in the day. So I mean, obviously, it's stuck in my memory. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I certainly haven't made a made a, a career back in Australia brewing lagers, um, although I've brewed plenty. Um, but that's been a real desert island beer for me. Uh, that was sort of a that's a style that that, that I've I just keep chasing. I don't think I'll ever quite get there uh, with a with a perfect one. But yeah, that that classic, you know, start home brewing, go overseas, discover what real beer is, um, come back and try to reproduce those beers. So I spent the rest of the 90s, um, you know, teaching myself to all grain brew and early 2000s all grain brewing. Um, I did, to be fair, a lot of the 90s and early 2000s, it was all extracts, so doing full boil extracts and that kind of thing. You just didn't have the access to a lot of the information um, and and experience, you know, and finding people who knew what they were doing um, and then that were then prepared to share the, the knowledge, um, you know, it was it was a challenge, but it was just something that you know I stuck at. I can imagine, um, you know, thinking back to all the experience I had with homebrew through that those periods as well. Uh, my granddad was a, a homebrew stout guy. Um, I, I'm pretty sure he was just using kit. Thinking about ingredients, even you know, access to knowledge is one thing, but then if you you know you learn about say even Sierra Nevada Pale or Bridgeport IPA, which were around then. But where would you, could you get hops and and malt? Sort of hand in hand, in a way. Um, what was it? A, a sort of 
groundbreaking beer in so many ways and a, a beer that changed our scene in a big way, a way that sometimes I think gets a little forgotten these days um, and led to, I reckon, the growth of homebrew in a way that we hadn't seen uh, was Little Creatures Pale Ale, um, which obviously was imitating you know, some of those beers that you've just mentioned. Um, but you know, we couldn't get fresh variants of those beers um, so Little Creatures was as close as we came. And it was such a cracking beer. Um, I guess the only other thing close to it in the not, you know, not so long after that really or around that same sort of time was you know, Alpha Pale and those beers. Um, in terms of stuff that you could get around the place, I guess Richard was kicking off at the Wigan Pen and was probably doing some fantastic stuff. But unless you were in Canberra at his brew pub, um, it was, you know, and we'd, we'd make trips down there and, 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 and so on, but it wasn't, wasn't quite the same, being able to buy, you know, your 60 of, of little creatures um, and then think, wow, how do I brew something like that? Um, then leads you to your homebrew store and you're suddenly pushing them to get their, you know, cascade hops in and to get their, uh, you know, it, 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 it sort of, it all came together. And then in the, not so long after that, um, the internet then revolutionised a lot of that scene um, and suddenly you could be, sourcing ingredients from all over the place. Um, you could be sourcing knowledge, some of which was good, some of which was bad, um, from all over the place. And equally, if you started to be able to brew a beer, um, you, you could your profile could start to, um, to grow. Um, that certainly helped us in the Murray's days, the early days with Murray's. So we started, um, I think, oh, it was 2005, 2006. I, start, I started in... 2006 in it was August or thereabouts and I think the brewery had started on the 1st of January 2006 so they were building it in 2005 there you go that's tested the memory banks um, but they they um, yeah we were with that brand and with that brewery literally out in the middle of nowhere like a village of 50 people 30 kilometres inland from the Pacific Highway from the town of Maxville. And Maxville is roughly halfway between um, Sydney and Brisbane on that Pacific Highway. So it was it was a very remote, you know, not remote Australia, fair enough, but it was an unusual place to put a brewery, let's put it that way, and particularly to put a brewery that's brewing the kinds of beers that we ended up becoming well-known for um, at that time. Um, we're really pushing the envelope. And, um, you know, I think looking back, that brand without the internet wouldn't have grown the way it did because things like Beer Advocate and Rape Beer and, and those sites, people were getting on there talking about the Murray's beers. And then, you know, the, they started opening bars like the local tap house in Melbourne and, you know, this guy I'd never heard of called Steve Jeffers is ringing me up chasing me for, for beers and I'm going, well, I've only got two kegs of it in the cool room and I can't, you know, how the hell do I get it from from there to Melbourne in one piece for you to drink. And if I do, it's going to cost you a gazillion bucks. And it's just, I'll oh, send it down anyway, you know. And, and that, that doesn't happen without that um, sort of mass and instant communication medium. So I think that's where, you know, the, the pioneers of the generation before that, so the, the Chuck Hans and the Phil Sextons and those the, that crowd, they really had to build... You know, if it was, you know, the Salonanka brew pub, um, and then and then um, working with the bigger the bigger brewers, um, with Chuck, it was starting his Han brand, and then working whether he liked it or not initially, but uh, with with the bigger brewers, um, the ability to 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 open up brew, you know, double IPAs and Belgian triples and and Imperial Stouts, and almost instantly have a market for them to a point that you could grow a brand and, and get some sort of a national platform, that doesn't happen without the internet, I don't think. It's an interesting um, that thought of, you know, Steve Jeffers, who we, we know, you know, co-founder of Stomping Ground and Gabs, and, um, you know, there was the kind of what drove a lot of this industry was just pure passion for product. And, you know, Dave and I are probably in that same boat of going these beers are interesting let's go and you know even within our world of traveling across melbourne to to try a new release or or whatever you know it seems so far away but that was kind of to to get you know uh i think it was in a, i remember when the first sour beer was made here in melbourne it was a temple scarlet sour and it was just like whoa 
It's yeah. my, I don't know if that's the very first sale there, by the way, made in Melbourne, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it was maybe a very early one and that was, you know, that kind of stopped everyone in their tracks. Everyone's like, oh, let's, we need to go no matter where we are in Melbourne and, and try this. Um, and, you know, the, the payoffs, you know, and in the case of Steve, you know, he's, he's spending a lot of money to get a keg down and people are paying a lot of money for it, but... I guess if the payoffs are worth it, because how else do you try anything like that? Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting evolution of the industry that, you know, and it helped, I get you're right, it helped drive things along of people being able to connect or join those dots together and go, oh, we can, you can get that beer here, or we just, we just need to work for it. It was a time that we've talked about, Luke, our, um, our heyday in being on top of 100% of everything that ever happened in the industry. Um, when you compare that with now when, I don't know what's going on at any stage ever. Um, but like at that time, like Murray's was sort of like the brand that was uh, sort of capturing the attitude of what everyone in our circle was like looking for, like the kind of bold, brash, cutting edge kind of thing. I remember um, Dave Thompson at Penny Blue put a keg of, um, Imperious, which is an imperial blonde on a hand pump. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is going on here? Um, yeah, some of, those, some of those funny moments. Or I remember, I can't think of who was managing um, uh, Biro at the time, but I was having a beer with him and he was tapping away at his uh, laptop going, oh, I can't believe how expensive these Murray's kegs are to bring down. And I was like, dude, you're selling $5 pint on Wednesday, this is your problem, not anyone else's problem. <laughs> we, I mean, and we had to charge for the beer because it was, you know, we can go back and talk about excise and everything, but I was also using stupidly expensive ingredients. And then we were brewing on a 12 hectolitre system, um, at least initially in a stupidly rural area. Um, and then and then people wanting it in Perth or wanting it in, in Melbourne or wanting it, um, you know, it was... Um, so, you know, Murray certainly wasn't um, buying Ferraris on the back of selling beer into Melbourne, I can tell you. Um, uh, and but, but it was, you know, it was a great thing. I mean, Murray um, absolutely um, should be applauded for backing um, backing us in to, do, to get us to do what we did, um, whether it was Graham or myself. Um, and then, you know, myself and Watson, uh, you know, I know you spoke to Watson um, a week or so back, um, you know, it was just such a great um, period at the time because, you know, now the experimentation and so on is, is, all, is, is everything and, and that's fantastic. Um, we, were, we were in that earlier period where some of that experimentation, we, we were able to do quite a lot of firsts or near firsts. Um, if it wasn't first, it's because we didn't know someone else was already doing it. You know, again, similar breweries at the time. Um, I think there was a it's a little bit of a, of a similar story with Feral uh, on the west coast, um, but we had no connection of any kind between each other because we're country east coast and they were country ish west coast. Um, and you know, the first time I tried a Feral beer um, was with Brendan at an event. Um, where we were representing both our breweries at the local tap house. That was the Sydney local tap house. Um, you know, um, but yeah, you know, similar, not not the same in terms of the, the the beers we were doing, but similar kinds of ethos in terms of you know beer first and and experimentation. But really experimenting from a a really strong point of of kind of knowing what the styles were to start with, and then bending the styles. Um, where it wasn't just throwing. In certainly in our case, I'm I'm, a, I'm an ex-academic. Everything I do is is pretty heavily thought out, um, uh, good or bad. That's just my personality, and um, it wasn't sort of throwing shit at a blanket and hoping. Um, I'd I'd spent a long time. Uh, I'd obsessively brewed. I did, I, did, I was in the, one of the first intakes in Australia for the BJCP, the Beer Judge Certification Program, going back, and it was like the ultimate train spotters um, thing. And uh, from a brewing point of view, from a home brewer's point of view, I, w I went back and 
and went through those BJCP guidelines as they were uh, back in the day and, and looked at beers and beer styles and researched them as you do when you're in that phase and, and then tried to brew them and brew them to spec. And they're beers that you could never get a chance to try. Um, but you, you, you're brewing them off the numbers and brewing them. And, and, and in my case, I would just brew them at home obsessively over and over and over again until I thought I'd get them right. And then I'd move on to the next in the style guideline. Whether I liked the beer or not, the style or not, it was just... Yeah, in hindsight, it was a great way for me to learn my trade um, and all grain brewing and just brewing in my backyard, you know, giving lots of beer away to friends and whatever. It was it was a good way to do it. And in our local community, we were lucky to have a couple of really good um, homebrew shops. One in particular, um, Mark's Homebrew, which is no longer with us anymore, but a guy called Mark Gallatly, um, who yeah, he he's somebody in the Australian beer industry that that you know nobody will be writing books about. But he um, certainly was a pivotal figure for me in terms of you know sourcing ingredients for me to to trial things, things that I then pretty directly took through to Murray's and did um, you know which you know, beers like. You run through some of the the names of the Murray's beers. A lot of those started in my backyard, and I know I brewed a lot of. You know, certainly some of the earlier ones, multiple variations of those kinds of those styles um, in my yard, and it was and it was often, you know, Mark chasing ingredients for me because I was chasing him to chase the ingredients because I was reading about this stuff in the states, and and people were bringing me beers back, you know, from Stone and from Rogue and from you know wherever, and, and I I was and I still am obsessed with Belgian brewing, and and I really it's with the Belgian styles, it's it's that real. Ethos. It's the philosophy of, of Belgian brewers. Um, you know the old cliche that you go from town to town in Germany, and you know your pilsner tastes exactly the same um, as the pilsner in the next village. And oh, thank you very much. That's 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 the biggest compliment you can give. Um, you, you go from Belgium uh, town to town in Belgium, and nothing tastes remotely similar. <laughs> so oh, thank you very much. That's the you know well that's that mentality is kind of what I've tried to bring to it um, with a an obsession initially for style uh, and and then for twisting style and doing something completely different. We took it as, as a, a writing instruction with Murray's that we would never brew anything to style. Um, but all of the beers started out with a blend of different styles and to come up with something unique as opposed to just kind of having a crack. I'm not saying it's any better than any anyone else's anyone else's way, but that was definitely my way and still is with, with Foghorn now. I don't want to talk about Murray's too much because we haven't really talked about Foghorn that much at the moment. Um, but Dave, <laughs> I noticed you were in the chat uh, finding out some beers. So the Chosen Brew podcast where people uh, list six beers that influence them. Uh, someone's mentioned in the chat that Murray's comes up quite a bit. What are the th- what are the beers coming up from Murray's that people are talking about, Dave? Uh, first one was the Icon, uh, Angry Man, and I said it's got to be Wild Thing, and it was confirmed that yes, Wild Thing was one of the ones that uh, got talked about. So uh, we did we did, we did a run of Imperial Stouts. We went Imperial Stout crazy there for a while. Um, it was um, which was a lot of fun. And uh, on an Angry Man, are they all? sort of have their their roots in your homebrew um the original both of those original original recipes so the very first icon that came out um was brewed by the original head brewer graham mahi um who's from new zealand and his roots were in the, the kiwi scene um but by the time um we were I think the very first bottle runs, uh, Graham was still with us and, and um, was very much leading the recipe side of things. Um, he left not too long after that um, and went back to New Zealand and I took over. Uh, I think that would have been 2008, so I started there 2006. He was gone by about 2008. Um, and while that it was really, um, what, 2009 or 10, we'd moved the brewery down to where it is now, which is Port Stephens near Newcastle, which is still, it's hardly a built-up area, but, but it's a lot a lot closer to civilization than Taylor's Arm was. Um, and that was where we, and we put a you know, bigger new brewery in, and, and that's where it really, really started to, to take off and, and grow. But yeah, Icon, um, by the time we were selling sort of volume of it, it I'd changed it up quite a lot. It, it started off very crystal malt heavy and very... Um, um, sweet's not the word in terms of the malt, but it was it was that classic early Australian IPA, um, 
and I dried it out. Uh, again, I, I think coming from my love of, of Belgian beers, um, dryness of finish is something that's really critical to me. So you can have big initial mouth-filling sweetness on a beer, but if it doesn't dry out, it makes it very hard to drink a second one. Um, and IPAs of the day were using bitterness to dry out or to, to combat a lot of that extra caramel malt. And, and Brewing Wisdom said that if you're going to have a high bitterness in the beer, you had to have a huge malt backbone to back it up. And, and people threw a lot of crystal malt at those IPAs as a result. Um, I, I took that initial um, IPA with the icon and, and yeah, just consistently dried it out and dried it out. Um, we kept with the Kiwi hops and that, that so Graham got me on the New Zealand hop kick um, initially and I really ran with that. That became something that um, I really pursued as part of Murray's house profile. Um, it was was big malts and Kiwi hops um, and if we were doing Belgian styles, big yeast notes as well, big big yeast characters. Um, and that that was really where we ran with it. Yeah, I can um, I was a lot happier with it by the time I left. Anyway, <laughs> it was it was it was a, a much more what people are now calling West Coast IPA. I suppose at the at the time we just called it IPA. Um, you kind of yeah. Speaking of that Murray's time and, and now at Foghorn, you know what I think of as Foghorn is probably the first step of your brewing career where you're you're loving the the stouts um you know sligo stouts uh, multi-award winner and almost uh, i guess from the outside seems like a flagship for you um and you know looking at the menu um it's been a while since i've looked at the foghorn tap list but it's pretty it's not big crazy imperial stouts and big ipas as a standard is a kind of a uh, a more rounded classic series of beers is that fair to say i think it changes up all the time so when you look at the list um at any given time it can look more classic or it can look more silly um depending depending on on the time but we we don't tend to go in for um and this is me showing my age more than anything else um we don't go in for the the milkshake beers uh, so much um i think it's fantastic that uh, there's that market for that, and people are doing some great things with lactose in beer. Um, I'm just not one of them, so um, we don't play in that space. Um, but we we tend to try to balance the list that we'll have. Um, we always have a very light, low ABV beer. So we've got a, a, our dads with prams. That's two point eight percent, and we've had that for five years. Um, and that's our that's a hobby, um, you know, basically an American pale ale at two point eight percent. Then we have. Um, a mid and we have a couple of session pails um, and then outside that we always try to have a few uh, lagers on tap we try to have um, a, a solid range of IPAs in, in different IPA styles and at different ABVs um, and then we try to mix in stouts and a couple of Belgians so we've got, we got 17 taps all up or 16 taps and a hand pump at the Newcastle venue and then we've got uh, 10 taps at our new Hunter venue. Um, so we've got plenty of taps to get a range of beers on. Um, but they all have to move. There's no point having beers that sit there for, for 12 months in your, in your cool room and not moving. Um, and they all have to be, be good. Um, and, and, you know, uh, you've got to come in. If you come into the venue and, and you, you come across a couple of nights and you, you work your way through all 17 taps, um, I don't want you walking away thinking, oh, yeah, six of them were great and the rest sucked. Um, I, I hate that experience when I go into a brew pub and, you know, I might not like a style of beer. Um, yeah, they might have the, the triple-fruited milkshake, lactose, um, raspberry, guava, imperial pastry smash, um, and I will hate that beer. Um, but if it's really well-brewed, I'll say that's a really good beer. Um, I want people to be able to do that across my tap list as well. Um, might not like the style, but the quality's got to be there. And um, that's that's important. So, would you? I guess, yeah. How would you describe the difference then between a a foghorn approach and a Murray's approach? In terms of the philosophy behind the beers, there's no difference. Um, it's still big malts, big hops, big yeast, but in balance. Um, balance is the, the critical thing. Um, I think, to some extent, the industry's moved. Um, the the beers are a very similar mindset behind the beers, um, very similar balance in the beers. Probably, if anything, they've gotten slightly drier over time. Um, um, but 
yeah, um, in terms of the thought process behind it and the bending of styles and the mashing of styles, um, very much the same. Um, I think to some extent, um, the, there's so many more players brewing so many more styles um, and a consumer um, that has developed that wants to try everything all the time um, has helped breed that market and and it's great i mean it's it's really good to have that variation it's such a stultifying thing to walk into a pub and always have the same three beers and only three beers um so it's it's fantastic that that uh, you know that breadth and depth of experience is available out there now um we do what we do and we do it to the best of our ability basically um we're, we're experimenting more at the moment um, with lager and with saison yeast. Um, they're the two things. So in terms of our tap list right now, um, I think we've got four lagers um, and um, I think we've got the the bock that's coming out of um, the Hunter venue. Um, we've got a hoppy lager, our XPL. We've got a, a, a bastardised Keller beer um, in the Rowdy. Um, we've got a higher ABV um, lager coming through um, and then Saison's we've got one on at the moment and we've got a r interesting low ABV um, sort of hybrid it's a little bit Saison, a little bit Goza a little bit kind of sour but but not um, that's coming through um, that'll be on next week but again it's really interesting balance and it's just having fun with with those kinds of beers um, You're talking about the, the Hunter brew house so Foghorn was up for sale. There was a time when, um, I guess, looking from the outside, it looked like Foghorn was was done. Uh, and then, what is now Mighty Craft uh, was founders first. Were they? Were, you were the first kind of uh, investment for that that group. Is that right? Well, the very first one was Jetty Road oh, okay. in Mornington Peninsula, and and we were second. Um, we, when you say it was up for sale, um, it, it, it was and it sort of wasn't. It was um, ultimately it was myself and my original business partner going our separate ways. Um, and to unscramble that egg, um, we, it, it, the business um, ended up uh, going to an expressions of interest process. Effectively, it was for sale. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I didn't want to take my investment out um I, I didn't want to walk away from it it was it was more my business partner wanting to leave uh not me um i couldn't afford to 100 percent buy him out um and so we we ended up going uh effectively to sale um there was a lot of interest which was quite gratifying <laughs> at the time um but it was a really stressful period i won't lie um and you know um i've got um, a family with you know two daughters and, and my partner and, and our house is on the line um, and it wasn't it wasn't a comfortable thing to go through but it wasn't because the venue was going badly it, it was it was really a um, my partner wanted to my business partner wanted to do something else and and he and I had pretty much run our race so um, what's now mighty craft or was was then founders first or one of the um, the people that were most interested and in the end, um, it was a it was a positive thing that that the people who were um, most interested were only really interested if they were partnering with me. Um, it wasn't the case of someone just buying buying a hospitality venue and then wanting to turn it into you know a nightclub or something. <laughs> um, uh, and they, yeah, I, I was able to to come to an arrangement with the founders guys um, and. Um, my investment translated into the new Foghorn Brewery. So we went from being Foghorn Brew House to Foghorn Brewery. Um, so two different ABNs uh, became two completely separate uh, businesses in the end. Um, and, and here we are. Um, I, you know, everyone, every second person in the industry is um, sending me an email or giving me a phone call. It's slowed up a little bit now, but certainly across the last 12 months, you know, what are the founders guys like? Um, how are they to work with, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't have a direct investment in them, um, separate to our relationship with Foghorn where we're business partners, but, um, it's been really good so far. Um, I, uh, they um, they leave me alone, 
to do what I do well and, and I run um, the business here in Newcastle. But they're, um, they're there to support. I mean, it, we were a brew pub, as I said at the start of this, a very deliberate and brew pub only. We weren't packaging at all. Um, they've convinced me to do some packaging now. Um, I was pretty resistant to it. Um, but part of the reason I was resistant is I couldn't afford to do it well uh, and I couldn't off my own bat and I couldn't afford the sales force that needs to go with it. Again, coming out of the Murray's um, experience, I learned quite a few lessons. Um, and one of those is if you can't get the beer in pack in a decent shape, it's not worth, it's just not worth doing. Um, poorly packaged beer is no good for the industry at any level. So A, I wanted to be able to package it well. And B, um, if you don't have a sales team, you can't sell the beer. Um, so you can't afford to package it. So stick to your, stick to your knitting and keep your brew pub. Um, one of the key things that, that Mighty Craft slash Founders has brought uh, to me is their, um, their sales team. So I pay into, or well, Foghorn pays into um, the Mighty Craft uh, solution, I think it's now called, a sales collective, if you want to call it that. Um, and look, it's, you know, it's in its early days in its current incarnation, but apart from um, me having a sales presence locally in the Newcastle and Hunter area, and that's really where we're focusing so far. I've got, as we grow, and part of moving into the Hunter is a vision to build um, a new bigger brewery so that we can get beer to Melbourne and we can get beer to points beyond Newcastle um, and, and have our own packaging line and, and all those sorts of things. Um, is um, that I've got sales support now in all of those markets. Um, and taking to the next level, um, we've got refrigerated freight and storage into all of those markets, which from a brewing point of view and a brewing purist point of view, um, that's essential. There's no point having all the full-flavoured, hop-driven, yeast-driven, um, you know, unfiltered, unpasteurised products um, to then sit on the back of a truck in the heat to send all around the country, um, you know we've we've got now uh, access through Mightycraft to refrigerated freight and storage into Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, and that will expand across the country as I understand it. So, you know, I'm not trying to sound like an ad here, but it's 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 been a really you know it's been a really good um, relationship so far. Um, you know, the beer is what it is, the venue is what it is, um, but I've got access to, to growth that I wouldn't have had on my own. Um, I want to come back to Sligo because uh, that seems to, as I said, it's won a couple of awards and you, know, you talked about starting your career with Stout um, <laughs> in, in, a, in a roundabout way. How do you see it? What do you think about that beer? Where does it fit in the Australian beer landscape? Because Stout... Does it have a place in the Australian beer landscape? Uh, is it growing? What do you What do you think about that? Oh, I, uh, look, um, I don't think you could say that the stout market itself is growing, um, but stouts always had a really important place in the Australian beer market. I mean, one of the great things about even the darkest of dark days of the mainstream domination of beer um, in the the pre craft world, if you want to use that kind of terminology, it, you could you could walk into a local bowling club. Um, and you know, you know, you'd have some hope of getting a Cooper's Best Extra Stout. You'd have some hope of getting a Sheaf Stout. You'd have some hope of getting a Southwark Stout. You'd have um, in the stout market, um, just as a accident of history, um, due to our Commonwealth roots more than anything else, um, there were there were stouts, and it was still a hangover. It was always the oldest bloke in the club that was sitting in the corner clutching his bottle of Sheaf Stout or whatever it was. It was the unsexiest beer you could possibly imagine. But um, it kind of kept kept the dream alive um, for for fuller flavoured ales um, and fuller flavoured beers um, than you know in, in an ocean of more mainstream lager styles. So that that tradition means that stout's always got a place in the Australian market. Sligo stout is basically an, an American stout, if you want to use that terminology, and it's a it's a hop driven, hopped up stout. Uh, again, back in the Earlier Murray's days, we did some um, some things with really hop-driven stouts in an era when, you know, it was sort of brewing law that that um, late hops and, and aggressively late hopped uh, stouts, you know, did, it, roast barley, uh, dark malt character and and hop aroma and flavour didn't necessarily go together. It was perceived that you know you used a good bittering charge in your stouts, but you didn't waste your flavour and aroma hops on stout. 
Um, whereas the American craft beer, as soon as they did pretty much everything, they just swept through and threw hops at everything. Um, it was, yes, you could really oversimplify the American uh, craft scene's contribution to the world of craft beer by just saying um, it, it's just pushing hop. Um, you know, there, there's a lot more to it than that. But but they they brought their more assertive, uh, more aromatic, more um, more aggressive hop flavors, hop flavors and aromas to a wider variety of beers. And um, Sligo is pretty much a classic best extra stout type of stout. It sits in that, you know, 7.6%. It's a little bit stronger than, say, your Cooper's size, but it's, a, it's, an, it's a, an export stout that's more aggressively hopped, um, and, and it's hopped with US hops, and it just works. It's won, it's won lots of awards. It's a really nice nice little beer. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the awards we've won with Foghorn, we've won a, a range of different awards over the time, but the our Young Americans won, Young Americans IPA won, um, Gold at the OIBA a few years ago, you know, in a pretty, pretty hot IPA field, um, and I was pretty, pretty pleased with that. Um, having judged those competitions over a, well, fair, a fair few years now, you've um, already dated yourself. That's, so you can say it. <laughs> yeah, that's, but there, um, the, the, you know, that's always um, the parallels in the IPAs, the categories where that have the most entries. So to to get someone to stand up in those categories is is always pleasing as a brewer. Um, but uh, yeah, the Sligo is really pleasing because of its consistency. So yeah, it's if it's you can you can jag something once, but to do it a few times is is pretty good. Good for the ego, anyway. And does that um, does it sell? Uh, uh, enough to kind of warrant the, well, not to warrant, sorry, but like to match up with the awards that it gets. Yeah, uh, look, again, um, it, it's not our biggest selling beer. No, it's not. Um, but it's it more than holds its own. Um, it's one of our few. We only can um, uh, four beers at the, consistently at the moment, and um, the Sligo Stout, even in midsummer, at seven point six percent, and it's not the cheapest beer on the market. Um, but we're currently out of stock and we've got people knocking the door down to get it. So I can only brew so much of it anyway. And, um, but it's, you know, in winter, um, it's in high demand. And on, on draft, it holds its own in the tap list. We, we rotate through beers at Foghorn constantly. We only keep a few on um, as regulars and Sligo is one of them. And that Young Americans IPA is 6.8%. So you're talking about 7% IPAs before. It's a proper IPA in that sense of ABV. And that's been our biggest selling takeaway beer. Initially, we only did growlers and squealers takeaway, uh, and it was more than two to one uh, consistently over a period of three years, our biggest selling takeaway beer. So it was the first one we put in can, and it's our biggest selling can beer. Um, it sells more than our, um, you know, 4.5%, 4.7% pale ales. So it's, it's a bit of a... You know, if we were to if we were to grow the brand, um, we will have our, our session strength beers out there, but... Coming back to, you know, how do the Foghorn beers compared to the Murray's beers and that mentality, um, you know, we grew, we, we grew the Murray's brand based on on taking some risks and putting, you know, not dumbing anything down, putting full-flavoured, full-bodied full product out there. And it was very much a build it and they will come mentality. And Foghorn was the same thing. Um, in, investing the amount of money that we did in the, in the, the location that we did at the time that we did looks – like an obvious decision now, but in 2014, walking into that venue that had been empty for 10 years in a CBD that had been broken for 25 years, um, people looked at us pretty strangely. In the first couple of years, we were, were, were tough enough, um, but, you know, six years on, we're still standing and growing and, and we've now expanded to the Hunter and, um, you know, if COVID hadn't have gotten in the way, the brewery would have the, the, the new brewery project uh, at the Hunter um, would have been well underway by now, if not if not opening. Um, that was certainly the plan. COVID, like everything else, slowed that right up. Um, but uh, we're getting back to it now, and um, that will enable us to just increase the capacity, basically. Um, that brings us, I guess, pretty much up to date and the, and the future. Uh, and we've just ticked over an hour, so I reckon that's probably a good place to wrap up. I don't think this is probably going to end our conversation, Sean. I think we're going to have you back and and start pulling at some of these other threads uh, that you mentioned along the way because there's a lot to pull on. 
haven't, we haven't even covered politics, music, and football yet. So you know, could do that for hours. Uh, but you're you're NRL though, so it might be a different. Oh, I can talk about it for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, if people want to keep in touch with uh, all things Foghorn, is there a website they can do that at? Yeah, um, so foghornbrewery.com.au. Um, also, uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, and a very limited Twitter presence, but um, Facebook and Instagram are good places as well as our website. Yep. Awesome. Dave, where do people get you? At Mel Dave on Twitter. Send me an email, dave at alivertime.com. How about you, Luke? At alivertime, alivertime.com. Um, we talked about range at the start of the show. I had a, an article about range earlier this year. Uh, and Broadsheet, which is a bit of a background to their pub, go check that out if you want to learn about their new brew, oh, not their brew pub, their tap room in Melbourne. Uh, and then if you want to learn about UFOs, we just did a great episode of the Hypothetical Institute all about uh, the British Roswell, Rendlesham, apparently, a Hypothetical Institute in your podcast apps. Uh, thanks a lot, everyone, and thanks for joining us in the chat if you joined us on YouTube, and we'll be back 8.30 next Monday on YouTube. Just search Beer Together on YouTube. Bye.